Welcome everyone to Starts Local, Ends Local, your emergency management podcast for everything local emergency management. And today I have a very special guest with me, Dr. Dana Bryant, and she is uh, most well known for uh, starting the Crisis and Disaster Management Program at the University of Central Missouri. And I thank her very much for joining me today. Uh, Dr. Bryant, hello, how are you? I'm doing very good. I'm enjoying the rain. That's right. And the cool temperatures. (laughs) <laughs> and we're finally getting some rain. I know the farmers uh, really enjoy it. I'm just uh, hoping it's um, not all at once, uh, especially in this community, which tends to flood a lot. Um, so I know you have a, a long history in emergency management, and I just want to learn a little bit more about you. So could you tell me, how did you get started into emergency management? Well, and I guess it's probably only fair to say that I, I've never held a job in emergency management, but when I went to graduate school, I was interested in hazardous materials. So my goal was to be the queen of hazmat for Kansas City, Missouri. And I went to work for Kansas City, Missouri before they had a hazmat team um, and did hazmat. And so I did mostly environmental investigations and cleanups, but a lot of that involved some spill cleanup, work with EPA and DNR on Superfund sites in the city and things like that. Then I came to the university to be a assistant professor of industrial hygiene. So I taught industrial hygiene and safety for a decade, and there was a new statewide mission for the university. I served on a committee that invited proposals for new degree programs that have a technology focus. And at the time, there was a graduate student who was, hey, FEMA has this new initiative for higher education and to create degree programs in emergency management. Also at the time, um, MU Fire Rescue Training Director had done a study look at how many firefighters in the state of Missouri did not have a bachelor's degree. And he saw this big need and he had invited some academics to talk to him about that. So there were a couple of different areas of um, employment or careers where there really wasn't a good educational route to get to that. And so our thought was that all of these have risk is kind of a common core to them. And then somehow it's managing risk. And as a safety person, managing risk was kind of at the heart of what I did. And so um, we designed a degree program that kind of focused on without really having risk in the title of any class, mostly um, an emergency management focused degree program that would also um, include a track for hazardous materials, a track for the private sector side with business continuity. And eventually we added a track that was emergency services management that was much more geared towards leadership in the fire service and EMS. Um, And so it met a need in a lot of ways, but especially met a more local need in the state of Missouri for a career path through education for people that wanted to advance um, in those careers. And what year was that um, when you all saw the need? Uh, do, do you remember? 1997 okay. was when we started drafting the proposal for this. I went to the FEMA Higher Education Conference Symposium, which was about 60 people then, and included a lot of researchers, people that write the books that we used in a lot of the classes. So I got to meet Tom Drabeck and Rick Silvis, and you know, just meet a lot of the who's who that were the researchers doing this. And, and um, Wayne Blanchard was the FEMA person who was kind of the key of kicking this off. 
um, and a lot of other national figures kind of came to those meetings. And that was a big influence of what should the education of emergency managers be like? Because there really was no template for it. Um, there still really isn't a template for it, but there was at least a lot of discussion by people who are really knowledgeable about what we should be teaching people. And I guess I found a couple of flaws in their, in their approach. And that is that um, they were looking at the graying of the profession and they were looking at other professions where people would go to college first and then they would enter the profession with a college degree. And that was, that's what college does, right? It's kind of the model for higher education is you go when you're 18, you're out when you're 22 or 23, maybe you get a master's degree and then you enter the field that you want to be in. That isn't really a very good model for emergency management. And I think that that is part of the struggle is that higher education is patterned off of that, but it isn't really very workable for the fire service or EMS or emergency management or any of these other um, niche areas that people would practice in because experience trumps education. Experience has trumped education for more than 20 years. It trumped it in 1997, it still trumps it. I mean, experience matters. And this has been a struggle for all higher education um, programs that are out there is that if their model is that we take 18 year olds and we graduate them and we want them to enter the career of emergency management is there aren't jobs for people with no experience. Right. And so, you have to combine education and experience. And so our model when we created the degree program was that it would be completely online and that people would not leave their communities to go to college because that's where people are already getting the experience. And our, and our target market were adult learners, people who are already had experience in some aspect of managing risk or emergency management, and they had not yet earned a college degree and to make that accessible to them so that they could combine their experience with education and then fill the need out there for experienced managers and not just high college graduates. And that really speaks to my soul. I mean, that's, that's the path that I took. Um, I don't know, um, we've, we've talked a little bit, and so I don't know if you're familiar. So my background is law enforcement, and so I spent uh, from uh, 2005 until 2018 uh, I spent my time in law enforcement, uh, 12 of those years were full-time, and, um, you know, I've been um, continuously uh, certified, I guess you could say. Uh, I keep my post-certification, plus I'm also, um, you know, um, with a sheriff's department here, uh, and I've been with the sheriff's department most of my career, um, but what that does for me, like you were talking about with the experience, is uh, it, it gave me an insight into how emergency services interact, and especially in um, you know a high stress environment, and it gave me um, kind of a foundation of uh, you know how to look at managing, uh, and I, I say that kind of loosely because we are uh, uh, we are not you know managers per se. We are uh, you know unless it's you know operation centers and things like that, but but we do uh, set the uh, foundations and planning to make sure that uh, you know when there's training and exercise. Uh, that those um, those functions fit together like a puzzle so that, you know, you get the proper uh, experience in training and you're not going to some incident and having that unknown and, and having a delay in action because, uh, you know, something threw you off. 
but that also gave me the ability in emergency management, I think, to learn a little faster, uh, you know, uh, because of grant requirements. Uh, you know, we had our uh, EMPG, uh, which is the Emergency Management Performance Grant, that has uh, certain requirements uh, at which you take, you know, the basics of emergency management. Uh, but after being in emergency management for about two years, I thought, you know, there, there's got to be much more that I just don't know. And so my, my path, and I really always say I, I kind of worked it backwards, but it sounds like it was designed that way, which is great, uh, in, in getting um, my bachelor's later on in the program. Um, you know, I have to say I'm a little biased uh, because uh, I'm now an alum of University of Central Missouri in the Crisis and Disaster Management Program. Uh, but, but it worked out really well because, uh, you know, I, I learned uh, quite a bit, uh, especially in like the business continuity. That was my interest field. Uh, but but also um, just in seeing how others apply emergency management. So it was nice to have those uh, discussion posts with the students and with the professors as well. Uh, and so so I'm I would say I'm, I'm at least modeling what you expected as as a student to come into to that program. And and it worked out really well for me and I enjoyed my time. Well, and you brought up a couple of things that I think are important in emergency management education that aren't practiced at lots of institutions. And it's because the higher education model is not a good fit and there needs to be some innovations. And we introduced a lot of those innovations against a lot of pressure by the university for more of a conventional approach to education. And some of it is, you know, I, I heard somebody give a presentation one time about like the three pillars of success of emergency management education, which it is like educational content experience, but there really also needs to be some training and hands-on kind of thing. So their training is a big part of it. And especially in the practice, right? Training is a necessary component. You cannot just start off on the ground floor without having a lot of training. And so that training comes with people that already have experience. They've already been trained, but they haven't been as educated about why we do certain things and about policy and about maybe some of the history of how things have been done before, um, but also some of the other disciplines. That emergency management is a multidisciplinary field. And a lot of times training is very narrowly focused on actually how to do something. And it doesn't broadly cover a lot of other um, areas of knowledge that contribute to why we do that and how we do that. And so education is a way to bring in other disciplinary perspectives so that you're not just flat <laughs> in terms of, you know, you know it, but you don't know why you're doing it. And if you have to innovate somewhere along the way or you have to modify, how do you do that? And I think the exchange with other experienced people is amazing. So for yeah. me, teaching, the best part of teaching is what I learned from the students. So I, I learned so much every class that I taught because the students have knowledge, they've already got experience and they share that with each other. And we try to craft um, learning activities, assignments, where there would be a lot of exchange because that's where, and I mean, in most students, no matter how much experience they have, they'll tell you that they learned more from the other students. 
well, that's the kind of thing that college professors hate to hear, right? Because they want to be the source of all knowledge, right? And this is the model of higher education is like, I know everything and I'm going to tell you what I know. And that's what college professors are comfortable with. But to teach online and to teach adult learners, you have to be more of a guide on the side. You have to be the person that at least constructs a situation where people can contribute their knowledge and share it with others and that you can learn from a variety of sources. And I think another innovation that came about at this time in higher education when we were creating this degree program is a recognition of different learning styles that people learn differently. And people who don't go to college when they're 18 years old learn differently than people who go to college when they're 18 years old. That's just a fact of life, right? Is that some people are geared up at 18 and college is their destiny and that's where they want to go. And that's what colleges recruit. They recruit those people that at 18 know they want to go to college. They don't recruit people who are 40 years old that, that missed going to college when they were 18. And we did. And so we had to go out and recruit the adult learners to do this. And we did that by going to conferences and meeting people and uh, engaging with people that were in their careers to say like, hey, there's stuff that you could know that might make your job either easier or more enjoyable or help you solve problems. And you can have a network of other people that are also going to be involved in sharing information with you. So there's a lot of value. It's not just about the diploma, but that's hard until you actually experience it and you see what value there is from it. And that is really something that, you know, me and my colleagues had to work on to make it that way because higher education is not designed that way. So we had to do things differently and probably one of the more annoying questions that I would get from the institution about the learning process is how do you make sure that everybody learns the same thing? Okay. That is a crazy concept, right? But that's kind of their mindset is that all students are blank slates slates, and they're going to come in knowing nothing. And then you fill them up with information. And at the end you assess, do they know these things that we expose them to? But when you have adult learners, they already come knowing a whole lot of things. And what you learn is based upon what you already know, that everybody has a different learning experience based upon the knowledge they already possess, the the experiences they've already had. And then when they're studying the same things, they're going to get something different from it. Everybody's going to get something different from it. Oh, well, that's not an answer that higher education wanted. But what they get out of it is much higher than what you would get if you're just measuring like the basic stuff. And so we were forced to like measure some basic stuff to prove to them that everybody is getting the basic stuff, Mm -hmm. but missed out on the real focus was how much more people learn because they have experience that they can combine with that knowledge for application, right? They're not just memorizing a bunch of facts, but they're applying this information as they acquire it, they're comparing it to what they've known in the past and how they would use it. And they're already using it in many cases every day doing things instead of waiting until they get graduate and then go get a job and then maybe start using the stuff they've learned. I mean, they're being able to test that knowledge and compare it 
and validate it as as they're in the class which is amazing and every class i've taught students are telling me during the class like of experiences where they are actually right now using this knowledge that they're exposed to which that doesn't happen in college i mean that is right. an alien experience and when i would share that with my other like college professor colleagues it was something that was just totally out of their experience they would never done anything like that so like for me teaching this has been like one of the most rewarding kind of career opportunities i've had because i've got to know a whole lot of very interesting people and i've got a chance to help them transition from what they did know to what they can know and and open up avenues of inquiry and investigation that they didn't feel they had maybe the skills to pursue or the knowledge base to pursue them in the past. I agree with that 100%. You know, in my experience, um, I remember back to my exercise and design class. And uh, one of the first questions um, was kind of asking, um, you know, what your feelings were on the exercise models that you had seen uh, at HC, you know, and the um, uh, Homeland Security um, exercise, exercise evaluation, evaluation program. Evaluation program. Yes. Uh, I try not to use acronyms without giving some sort of explanation. And so with that HSEEP, uh, you know, I said, well, it, it works well if you have a large team of people who are doing your exercise and evaluation uh, and have that, that, you know, system, that cyclical system of every couple of years you do this or every couple of years you do that. And then you come back around to working your, you know, full functional or your, you know, your drill to your, your uh, functional to your full and then um, as, as I look at that, I said, well, you know, the, the problem is most county level, and of course I'm just looking at local level because that's my, where my experience is, uh, really don't have that. We can try to pull from other agencies and grab one or two people, um, but because the emphasis on that type of program is not um, given a lot of weight, uh, there's a lot of times at which those team members, you might be able to pull together for a drill or exercise, uh, a functional exercise but you might not be able to draw them together for a tabletop and you might not be able to draw them together for, you know, some sort of seminar where you're looking at what uh, your policy or plans are. And so that was, that was my comment. And I expected, okay, this is going to get some blowback because it was kind of a, a negative review, so to speak of HC, you know, it's a very good system model, but it needs a lot of things on the local level to, to really uh, comply with what, what they want you to do. Uh, and no, I, I experienced, uh, you know, all positive. Well, yeah, thank you for your perspective. And you're absolutely right. This is, you know, and how it was designed. And so uh, that was pretty enlightening to me uh, because I can tell you in my associate uh, program, you know, to get my associate's degree, uh, that's not exactly how it was, you know, and, and those classes are formed differently as well. You know, they're, they're your general ed classes. But, uh, you know, anytime you had anything to say that was maybe outside of the box to go, well, I kind of think this it was, hey, you need to stick with the program, you know, uh, and, and it was it was uh, distinct, it was polite, but at the same time, I got the message. Uh, but that's not how it was uh, with the crisis and disaster management program. So uh, I was pleasantly surprised that uh, my feedback was actually, um, you know, taken and, you know, processed and, and given back to me in a positive way that said, uh, yep, that's the experience that you've had. And, and you know, with that, um, I believe, uh, you know, that really helps adult learners as well because it validates that their experience is, you know, is good experience and it's not something that, uh, you know, most of the times, you know, things do fit in the textbook, but there are so many situations that are unique 
to what uh, we experience in emergency management uh, where one uh, tiny little thing like, like funding can throw us for a loop and we have to get creative in how we develop strategies to either, um, you know, limit resources so the funding, you know, isn't highly affected or to find other sources to get more funding. Uh, and so, you know, um, it, it was nice to, to talk with those learners and kind of get, you know, that insight as well. So, well, I think there's a couple things going on here. One is local versus things that are really modeled for national and or state use, which mm -hmm. HCEP is a national program, fits good at the federal level, fits pretty good at the state level. At the local level, you start to have issues and NIMS. Yeah. And, you know, there's just a lot of things that when people have really examined them critically for how they fit the local system, it is a different situation. I mean, this right. is true of emergency support functions, right? I mean, we have these set of emergency support functions at the national level seem to correlate pretty well with national, with federal agencies. At the state level, there are corresponding state agencies that are kind of, but at the local level, no, right? right? So we don't have, so if you try to model your stuff and use ESFs, then somehow now you're, you know, an agency has three of them or four of them, or nobody has one of them. And I mean, it's a mess. That's it true. just doesn't translate well. And there's a lot of things that don't translate well to the local level. The other thing in response to what you said is that emergency management is not a fixed body of knowledge. As much as we want there to be a body of knowledge and for credentialing and things, you need a body of knowledge. And there is a body of knowledge, but it's dynamic and it is changing yes. all of the time. And, and the education introducing degree programs to emergency management is changing that because there is inquiry and there is research and people are asking critical questions of how we do things and why we do them certain ways. And they're changing because of that. And there is this evolution taking place. So there isn't a fixed body of knowledge. It's not like math, right? <laughs> Where the answer is the answer and it's always going to be the answer. And in many cases, things that were right answers 20 years ago are not right answers now. And we have to be flexible. We have to be adaptive. And I mean, that's a foundation of emergency management is being flexible and adaptive. And so education also has to be flexible and adaptive. And that's not something that higher education does well. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of challenges to being able to have a effective degree program that meets people's needs. And it runs counter to the patterns of higher education. And that's pretty challenging. And that's one reason a lot of private schools have done a little bit better with this because they're a lot more adaptive than state schools are. So, you know, the fact that this could happen at a state school is kind of a miracle all in itself. Um, and we had the benefit of a lot of really good students and the students have improved the program over time because of their con contributions, their feedback, their suggestions about how to do things. Um, and, and we've adapted to that. And I think that that is what's made it last the 20 years that it's lasted because it didn't, we offered the first classes in the spring of 01. And then after 9-11 in the fall, some administrator says, well, of course you're doing this now because of 9-11, but like 
you know, when that all blows over, like who's really going to care about this? <laughs> like, you don't think there's disasters all of the time? <laughs> like this is the only disaster that's ever happened. I mean, but those kind of mindsets, I mean, this is something that we battle all the time anyway, right? Is that this is how it's always been. This is the way it's going to be. So having an educational offering is, you know, we've had to deal with the same kind of fixed ideas and opinions that emergency managers have to deal with all the time in doing things that they want to do. So, right. you know, I've experienced the same kind of barriers and frustrations in higher education, trying to create a degree program that meets the needs of students, which higher education would rather have a degree program that meets the needs of higher education, not the students. Right. And that's a challenge with emergency management. I mean, do you have a function that meets the needs of the citizens or does it meet the need of government? Like, are you just doing what government wants to do because that's what they have a need to do? Or are you meeting the needs of the citizens? And that is a challenge everybody faces in emergency management because it's very easy to just do what the government wants. Right. But that's that exactly doesn't right. do what the citizens need. Yeah, that's exactly right. So in looking at uh, feedback from, you know, the students that have come in, is there uh, any idea of what the future for the program and emergency management, uh, you know, how, how that looks? Is this um, just tailoring more of the, um, the specialized programs within the um, degree path? Or uh, is there any sort of like maybe uh, future uh, technology paths that, uh, that, that are going to be integrated in? Um, is there is there any insight you have to that? Okay, well, you bring up technology, which is like I mentioned that the reason the degree program even kind of even got some traction to begin with was because of the statewide technology mission. And the university counts it as a STEM program, um, science, technology, and engineering and math, because there is a lot of technology in it. And we differ from other degree programs in that other emergency management related degree programs do not have the technology focus that we do. And we have two technology related requirements in the course, in the, in the, the course of study um, that really require students to become an expert at some kind of technology. And to think about it critically, like how do we use this technology? Is this technology potentially gonna create other problems? <laughs> Could it be a disaster all by itself because of its failure and we're reliant on it? You know, because technology plays a big role in all disasters, not just in the recovery, but in actually the cascading consequences of disasters are usually technological failures, right? And especially the grid or other things we can look at, the role technology has played in any disaster that, we, that we're looking at. So that is something that we think our students have been, you know, kind of groomed to focus more on technology. And that's something that we need. And we need people that understand technology, how it works, and that can adapt it and use it because that's part of everybody's job. We're all using technology. So we focused more on that. And, and I think that that's a real plus. We also have a business continuity component, which I fought for 20 years that the university wanted to eliminate that again and again and again. What is it? Why do we need this? So I'm kind of an over horizon kind of person. I'm usually working a decade ahead or more of what's going on. And uh, I think I'm seeing some interesting trends with business continuity and how dominant that is becoming, both in government 
uh, and they may not call it that. They may call it coop. I mm -hmm. call it continuity Cost. of operations or yeah. continuity of government, yep. but it's still basically business continuity. And when we get into other maybe public private sectors like healthcare, I mean, are, are hospitals going to call their positions emergency management positions, emergency planners, or are they going to call them business continuity people? I mean, we're already, especially in the private sector, it's business continuity. Yep. I, I, I just went to ResCon, which is the National Governors Association Resilience Conference and spoke at it. And it is chief resilience officers. So like these are state resilience officers. So this idea of like there's a resilience officer. What is it that they do? Why is this not emergency management? It was a very interesting conversations with people over very negative opinions they had about emergency management really? and emergency oh, wow. managers it was really interesting that i think some of them felt like this push towards resilience officers was in response to the lack or the the failures of emergency management to address these broader needs and then when i look at what they're doing it's business continuity and i'm asking them like okay your resilience stuff sounds like business continuity to me like right. why don't do you know what business continuity they don't even know what business continuity is so it's kind of this weird little siloed perspective about resilience that isn't integrated more broadly into what's going on out there in the business sector and in other places and so are there going to be corporate resilience officers? There are, right? There are companies out there that form these resilience offices. Um, and so we haven't really settled on what names we're going to use, how these roles are assigned. And, and I just don't think that emergency management as a title is probably going to expand beyond government. I agree with that. In fact, um, you know, I, I found that it's a lot of the tasks at which I complete are a lot of program management. And so when you see private companies talk about having program managers and project managers, um, you know, that's, that's really what emergency management day to day on at least the government side, that's the perspective I can offer, does. You know, we, we pick uh, the program obviously as emergency management as a whole. And then we pick uh, projects uh, that fulfill our um, you know, core capabilities. And in those projects, we then have uh, tasks within them, whether it be um, you know, grant management or, or whatever is, is going on. Uh, I say that because we're just getting out of grant season. And so <laughs> that's fresh on my brain. Mm. But um, there's a lot of these tasks that um, kind of build as you know, your project to then further your program. And I look at that and I go, that is something that at least in the future that I see of emergency management is having a lot more integration and understanding that um, the specialties that come into emergency management, and, and I love the way some of our local uh, emergency management offices have specialty positions for like mitigation and for planning. And, and so when you have those specialty positions, you can then assign as um, you know, your, your program manager, you can assign projects in those fields to that specialist who then have the ability to then, you know, kind of filter down and, and get those projects complete. Um, and, and that, as I'm looking at it, um, you know, kind of describing, you know, where you were going there uh, is as being more of the future, uh, as I see it, in a government emergency management. And, and I know there's been some talk, and, and I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of 
maybe even changing the title of emergency management, but I don't think I've heard anything that really fits what we do. Uh, like you were saying, being malleable and, and being uh, flexible with everything we do. You know, I've been assigned, uh, even in the government, uh, you know, some tasks that aren't really emergency management tasks, but they're important to my bosses, uh, typically the county commission. And so because of that importance that's placed on it, you know, I, I feel that it's important as well. Let's get the task done. Uh, but because of that malleability, flexibility, uh, you know, we have the ability to, um, you know, develop and, and kind of go with the flow at having that project take place and get complete. And, and if I see anything, it's, it's that uh, emergency managers need to be relied upon on the local level so that they are uh, seen as, uh, as just being that reliable source. You know, if you take something to your emergency manager, you should know that, A, if they can complete the task, they'll do it. And, and so that's, that's also uh, something I see for the future of emergency management is uh, maybe, maybe a name change, but definitely uh, redefining the tasks. Because right now, I, I, uh, someone uh, commented on a LinkedIn post I had uh, about how they would define emergency management as public safety project management. And it just blew my mind. I was like, yeah, actually, that kind of is what we do. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think project management credential or certification is definitely a plus. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, when they're trying to think of like a graduate program or what, I think project management is an overarching skill set that is well recognized out there. And there are credentials for it that are highly valued. And I think that that's, that, that, that is a track that really should be pursued by people. I crisis and disaster management is what we call the degree program mm -hmm. because early in I got some feedback from some other people in the FEMA higher education world that were like mm, emergency management is a terminology that already has a lot of baggage and probably should be avoided. And so we avoided it. Now we had a track that's emergency management and it yeah. has that title on it and a, and a certificate because it is recognized in government as the job title. And I'm surprised in 20 years that it hasn't gone away, but it, it comes back to where I was talking about, like with emergency support functions, you have a federal agency and then you have a state agency that mirrors it. And then you have a local agency that mirrors it. But in reality, at the local level, what, um, what emergency management offices are doing or should be doing should be well broader than the scope of what the federal agency and the state agency of emergency management does. And that's part of the confusion is that the, at the local level, there's a lot more than what those agencies do. And there are other federal and state agencies that at the local level should be connected. And it isn't just meeting the needs of what the state wants from you or meeting the needs of what FEMA wants from you. I mean, that is a very narrowly focused idea of what your job is if all you're doing is what the state and the feds want from you. And this is a presentation I've wanted to do for local emergency management conferences is to challenge emergency managers as to what is your job and who decides what your job is. And interestingly enough, most emergency management directors could decide 
what their job is and could decide what they think is important to do and would be able to do that if they decided that. But most of them limit themselves to what the people that hired them want them to do or what grants fund them to do. And if you ask most emergency managers, those are the two criteria that they decide what their job is, is what the person that hired them wants them to do and what the grants require them to do. And beyond that, they don't do it. Um, in Disaster and Society course, Tom Drabeck's book, he says that emergency managers should be community change agents. I like that way of thinking <laughs> about it, right? Because <clears throat> I'm a community development person. My PhD that I just finished six years ago is in community development. I have a book so, on the shelf of community development. I'll so show you I, later. See, <laughs> I see a lot of what at the local level is important for emergency management to do is community development work. I agree. And that's a, that's a field that is alien to people even in the educational setting, and we probably don't bring as much into it. I do a lot with recovery, talk about how community development and recovery is about the same thing. So, you know, part of this problem is we're siloed, that emergency management is multidisciplinary, and there's a lot of disciplines that people are never exposed to. They don't understand what they can get from that discipline, either by reading the books right. or working with people that are specialists in that discipline. Uh, University Extension does disaster services, right? But as Extension, they don't have as narrow of a focus as to what emergency management is. They, because their model is more community development and they see what does the community need? I mean, they take more of a grassroots approach in terms of like, what is needed by the community out there? How do we meet that need? That's what Extension does. And they're right. extending the university into the community to meet the needs of the community. If emergency management took that approach to see what does the community need, do community assessments, because community development goes through a process of kind of community assessment, um, they probably would come up with different projects. Oh, yeah. No, I absolutely degree, uh, agree. I, I looked at, um, you know, locally here, we have a, a planning division within the city. And so, you know, I've talked to them several times about, well, how, how can emergency management, you know, help you all and how can you help us? And and what projects we can take on because there's a lot of meetings, you know, uh, that we go to for these um, stakeholder groups within, you know, that, that we really would have uh, in, let's say, um, a community organization active in disasters group, a co-ad group um, that we attend together. And I thought, well, if we're attending all these meetings together, you know, let's collaborate a little bit. Um, I, uh, I do have a uh, community planning uh, book on the shelf over there. Uh, I'll look and at I that just, and see who wrote it. <laughs> absolutely. I, I, I I'm always interested in who wrote it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll show you that. And, uh, and so, you know, the interesting point of that is uh, there's a lot of concepts within that, that that really speak to what emergency management does. And not only in, in those concepts, but I think a lot of it is, um, you know, one of the first questions people ask me is, what is it that you do? Um, and it is not a hard question. It's not hard to answer, but it certainly is a long answer. If you want the full and descript, you know, I'm, I'm going to be talking to you for a little bit. And a lot of it, you know, follows, you know, the, the cycle, right? You know, like we were talking, uh, you were talking about preparedness versus recovery. Yeah, those are like uh, light and dark. You know, they are a part of the same. Um, it's just at one end of the spectrum, uh, preparedness. Uh, and then uh, the event happens and then, you know, you have your recovery. 
Well, the, the recovery section, though, could be continuing. Uh, we've had a tornado in 2019. We still have a long-term recovery committee oh, yeah. that is still active. Um, and um, they, have, uh, they have very few. I think they have one case left. So that, that group is going to then cycle into a co-ed. But you know, prior to doing that, I said, hey, we need to have a recovery plan. So we can uh, open this book up because, you know, more than likely with a major disaster, we're not all going to be working here. You know, I may, but uh, the people who are involved in that group, you know, may not be. Um, and so if we can have a playbook just to look at and to say, hey, this is the steps we need to take after, you know, to form our recovery committee and then long-term recovery committees and, and go through the steps, uh, that will help us for our next disaster. And, and just getting to that point, you know, um, because again, that's that's a part of starting that preparedness role and then revamping that, having the group and then revamping that plan is again in your preparedness role, uh, you know, um, but it all started at the tail end of the recovery, you know. So yes, uh, wow, what a, what a great topic. And there's there's so many things. Uh, <laughs> there are so many things. And I think if, you, if I was gonna say that there's one overarching answer to that, what, what do you do? is multi-organizational coordination. Yes. I mean, I think that's primarily what emergency managers should be doing is that they should be interacting with a lot of other organizations and they should be. And so in organizational theory stuff in sociology, there's something new institutional sociology. There's a lot of focus on organizations and how organizations work together things like coordination and collaboration i mean these describe how organizations work together and they're things that a lot of people have not mastered they don't understand it i would love to have a workshop on meetings how to give good meetings and what you should do in a meeting because yes. i think most people have no idea of what go what they should be doing in a meeting and it's something to endure and they don't actually have any goals or objectives and their goal is to get out of it as fast as they can right. and so it's a bunch of waste of time because they don't contribute anything and they don't take away anything because no one's ever told them that they should and i think that there's there's a lot of small things that that if people knew they would function a lot differently but no one's ever bothered to tell them that so i had this conversation with uh, my brother-in-law in fact um when we were talking about uh kind of the rules of adulthood you know there's rules to being an adult and at different levels of being an adult there are more rules and in uh, in government um you know there's there's rules to that as well and so i was told by an elected official once uh, do not attend a meeting that doesn't have an agenda and and that's a very good rule but when you're dealing with these stakeholder organizations sometimes they don't have an agenda you know, and it's not that it's disorganized because the organizer has a very good plan of what they want to talk about, but from month to month to month, they just don't have an agenda that they, they give out. Uh, but having those steps and, and being most organized within our office, uh, you know, that's something that, that we strive to do to make sure that every meeting we have has an agenda. And even if it's, it's simple, you know, uh, where there's, there's uh, only new business so to speak, you know, and there, there's nothing else on it, you know, just just to show that our topics are A and B and we'll, there's always old we'll business. take 20, 20 minutes of your time. Yeah, there's always old business. So, I mean, that's the reason you need an agenda. There's always old business and there's always a next meeting. So there's always yeah. like what we did before we got here and what we're going to do after we leave here. And then there's some stuff that we want to do today. But yeah. some of this is about volunteers, too. And if 
if you're if you have a meeting that's all people that are on the clock and they're all getting paid to be there right, right? it maybe there's less pressure to accomplish anything of value but when you're dealing with volunteers and you're using their time and it's their time then meetings need to have a different focus and they need to be a lot more concise and you know if you've if you've gone through volunteer management training as I have through a lot of professional society services where I've had, where they've hired consultants to come in and talk to us about how you manage volunteers, right? There's a lot of things to be learned about that. And that's another thing we don't teach anybody. Right. So when we think about workshops at the SEMA conference, <laughs> there needs to be one about volunteers and all of the things that people need to know about managing volunteers. So when you talk about emergency managers don't manage much, right? They manage people. They right. manage relationships with other organizations and they have, you know, some need to maintain some kind of assessment of what the needs of the community is. That's long-term planning. Like what are the community needs? That's things that you're not going to solve right away. What social problems, what kind of things are going to be issues. You have to think about that long time ahead. And yes. those things pop up when you're setting up shelters. So like in the moment when you're doing things in a disaster, those other things start trickling in. And if we haven't paid attention to those before, like how many people are underfed and underhoused and homeless people as well as people with special needs, and we haven't really been working on that before, we're going to do a lousy job in, in a quick paced response right. time. That's and exactly we're going right. to do even worse when it comes to recovery. So we have to, you know, so even though we silo those things in preparedness and response and recovery and mitigation, there are these themes that go across it. So I have a little bit of issue with, you know, siloing people that they just look at these things because there are things that go across all of them. And sometimes you lose sight of that if you're just too task oriented. So. And I try not to be too task oriented. <laughs> Uh, I, I am a, I am a definite rule follower. You know, there there are moments where you know, I'm a I rule see... breaker. So. <laughs> I, the rules have, do not apply to me. That's why we have good conversation. That's why. <laughs> well, um, is there any um, any? I know we've kind of talked about uh, you know your, what your ideas are with emergency management, and in um, maybe is there anything you would maybe suggest to graduates uh, of the program? Anyone entering like graduate school? Uh, who want to continue in emergency management. Uh, you know, I know there are other uh, programs, but like I was looking, uh, you know, UCM has a great communications program and some other things uh -huh. that kind of pair well with emergency management. Is there is there any uh, fields that you would look at that, that you would say, well, this pairs well, this pairs well, or, or anything that, uh, that you would say? Okay, well, that leads to another weird philosophical viewpoint, is that I think about education in the traditional sense of being a pyramid. Right. You go and you get general education. You get a lot of broad stuff. And the more education you get, the more you approach the point. Right. So that like you're working on a Ph.D. or an expert at this tiny little bitty thing. Right. <clears throat> Emergency management or crisis and disaster management is a degree program. Always impressed me as being an inverted pyramid. Right. Because a lot of people come to it with a very specialized need like. I'm a, I'm a police officer or I'm a firefighter and there's stuff I want to learn and their and their training and or education up to that point has been very narrowly focused. Mm -hmm. And then as they get into crisis and disaster management, they're learning stuff that's maybe not of, uh, outside of their wheelhouse a little bit. Like I know more about sociology or I know more about 
you know, social needs of people. I know these things and they're broadening out. And then they think about going to grad school. And again, the traditional grad school would be something that's like very narrowly focused. It's the point top of the pyramid, but instead the opportunity comes to broaden out and to do something that expands your skill set, not narrow it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's hard to get good career, good, good career counseling advice, especially at a university for what that would be. But this also corresponds to a time when higher education graduate programs do not require that you have an undergraduate degree in that field. So 20 or 30 years ago, you want to get a master's degree in something, well, you better have a bachelor's degree in that thing. Um, and so I think if you, if you had a bachelor's degree in something else, and a master's degree in emergency management would cover a lot of bases. But if you're a graduate of crisis and disaster management, there's not much you're going to learn in a master's degree in emergency management because most people have built their curriculum at the graduate level equivalent to what we're doing at the undergraduate level. So it's kind of boring. And uh, other things are a lot more inviting, like right. getting a master's degree and like, so of the graduates of the CDM program, which over 300 and something now, they have done everything you can imagine. Urban planning, law school, physician's assistant, paramedics going to physician assistants, uh, MBA programs, MPA programs, public administration, fairly common. And there are probably a handful of schools that have gotten more students than others. Eastern Kentucky has a master's degree that is emergency management, security, and safety. So it's kind of a broader thing, probably a lot more private sector if you're industrial or something would be appropriate. Um, and MBA programs for people that are, again, interested in business continuity and stuff, knowing more about the business enterprises, useful. But yeah, communications, especially as, you know, managing social media, public relations, those kinds of things, crisis communication, being a PIO. So as people also start to self-select like, oh, I'm much more interested in being the PIO than I am in, or especially if you're aspiring to a state or a federal job where jobs are much more specialized than they are at the local level. If you're at the local level, you gotta be good at everything. Right. So specializing in one thing is maybe, but you know, people have done GIS because that's a skill set. So I mean, becoming more proficient at some technology is always a useful thing to be good at. And then, you know, maintaining your other credentials and the things that you've already built as a base, that is a challenging thing. I mean, I'm a certified industrial hygienist and a certified safety professional. And that's something that I did 20 years ago and I've maintained those because that is what my master's degree is in. And that is a base of knowledge and skill that I have and I maintain. And I haven't quite given that up, but it also defines a lot of how I look at things, how I think about risk how I approach problem solving, how I, you know, use the scientific method um, and, and how I approach solutions to things are kind of in that context. So I think that makes me different than a lot of other people. I think that's what we should be looking for is not to all be the same, but we should all be different in very specialized ways and then network with other people who are also different in between us than we are able to do everything. But if we're all just exactly the same, we don't really add a lot of value. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's it's so nice to 
talk with others within like different layers of emergency management. Um, you know, I haven't really um, had the opportunity to talk to a lot of, of my business continuity, uh, you know, partners or anything like that, you know, for, uh, but, you know, what's interesting is how many similarities, the terminology might be different, but the similarities we have in those, those fields, you know. Um, so, Dr. Bryant, tell me um, a little bit about if, if we want to hear um, any of your uh, talks or discussions, you know, do you have anything upcoming? I know you've spoken before you talked about the governor's, uh, you know, conference, but is there anything upcoming that you'd like to well, I'm, I'm speaking at the Joint Commission Emergency Management Conference, which is Joint Commissioners who uh, accredits hospitals. Mm -hmm. So it's a healthcare conference. And I don't think it's going to be publicly available. And, mm -hmm. and the same way with ResCon. I mean, I had friends that were asking about would my presentation be recorded or available, and they didn't do anything like that. So I don't think the Joint Commission one will either. We've had some rural summits because I also direct the Institute for Rural Emergency Management at the university. Um, and so we're planning one for October, been working with FEMA Region 7, who is interested in participating and working with us on that. So we do expect to have one probably on campus sometime in October. And we just haven't landed on a date yet because we are looking at a date that's basically homecoming weekend and that doesn't go to work. <laughs> right. There's no facilities on campus well, for well, doing this. If you could, please don't make it between um, the October 16th through the 20th. Bang in any other week, but that's okay. so I can so I can attend. Yeah. So that would that's we've had a couple of these. We did one in Northwest Missouri um, and we really make it more of a case study where we bring up some some example and we were planning one for 2020 that was going to focus on the building collapse in clinton missouri that happened in the early 2000s that was a multi-agency response because they're all multi-agency response and it's so interesting to see how every one of them is different and yet they have the same challenges of coordination and working with groups that you haven't worked with or trained with before i mean that's the whole nature of a disaster if you right. read eric ofterheide's definition of a disaster is like you're working with people you don't usually work with. Um, so I don't know if I'll have a speaking engagement. I don't have any at any state conferences coming up, but the Rural Summit is just a chance for uh, me to put together a program of things that I think people are interested in and bring in some speakers and I get a little bit of time. So somewhere out there on YouTube is a video that I recorded for the virtual one that we did in 2021 um, or 20 fall of 2020, December 2020, um, that I can send you a link to if you haven't found that before. Yeah, that'd be great. So, I, can, I can drop it in. Yeah, because it was it was really content. me explaining my model for uh, uh, the four C's of emergency management and the, the theoretical foundations for those. So that's kind of my, my dissertation work. So, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the better things is in the past, I've done some panels where I bring in some alums. I would really like to do that again, where we can talk about um, events that people have and what people are doing in their careers. I think students always like to hear that in terms of what, where do people end up and what are some of the, after Hurricane Sandy, we did uh, a big virtual panel with seven alums that had all done something related to the hurricane. And it was pretty interesting to see just That's all awesome. of the layers of things that people did. And that was, you know, like a broad regional response where people in New Jersey or people in New York and there are people that um, Brad Hubbard works for Shell Oil. Like he was up there doing some oil recovery stuff. I mean, there was just 
a variety of things. And so you don't always understand the complexity of and how much there is to do until you see all these little things that people are tasked to do. But then you also see where would you fit into that, right? right. Where would you fit? Would you be an IST person backfilling for somebody that's uh, been in the EOC for three weeks and now they need a break? Or would you be knocking on doors to find out needs that are unmet by people? You know, there's just so many places to be of service. Well, I thank you very much. I always try to give um, our guests the ability to uh, let me know if there's anything else that they want to discuss at the end of this. And so I'm going to ask you now, ah. is, is there is there anything that maybe we forgot? I know there's so much to talk about, but is there anything that maybe we forgot that you want to talk about now? The floor is yours. No, I think that higher education, like deciding to make an investment and in going to college is a big move for people. And I've talked to people over long periods of time in my recruitment where, you know, they thought about it for five or 10 or 15 years before they finally decided it was worth it to them. And, and um, what I was always told is you don't go to college to prepare for the job you have, but the one you want to have. And when I went and worked on a PhD for 10 years while I had a job, it was for what I wanted to do, not for what I was doing. It had a lot of benefit to what I was doing, but it really was things I wanted to know. So I think that's something somebody has to weigh is what am I, what am I going to get out of this? And it's a hard call. It's especially for people who have not been to college, four years of college, no matter how you stretch it out on a part-time basis, it's going to be a lot more than four years. Yep. 12 years was the longest I ever worked with one student who worked on completing a degree on a part-time basis. So it's it's a huge commitment. And and the higher education talks about the value proposition. We had this president that did for a while. Is, to, is it worth the investment? And I think that it's very hard looking at it to say it's worth it when you're done. I don't, I rarely ever find anybody who says it wasn't worth it. So it's just one of those things that in the rear view mirror, you can assess it a lot better, but you almost have to jump into it as an act of faith to say that it's something that you want to achieve. I agree with that. And I know, you know, in my experience again is, um, you know, I started in a degree path to get a certification. Well, actually, I started traditionally um, out of school, but uh, was only interested in athletics. And when that opportunity ended, I was then no longer into, uh, interested in, in college. And so then uh, it wasn't until after I got my certification for the law enforcement so that I could be post-certified. Um, and, and then from there, having my career in law enforcement and then switching professions, um, you know, it was it was at that point where I you know, really thought, man, you know, I, I need to be a little bit more serious about this. Uh, you know, at this time I was, I was married and I had kids, but I spent, you know, uh, 12, 14 years without kids or being married <laughs> that I could have um, had, um, you know, I had ample time to, to go back to school. And I look at it as uh, if anyone is on the fence and if anyone is going, well, should I, or should I not? Um, obviously there's a lot of planning that goes into it, but uh, take that leap, you know, uh, do, do, because it will uh, absolutely give you a better perspective of what it is you're doing. And I love the idea that um, you go to college for what you want to do, not maybe what you're doing now. So I love that idea as well. And that's, that's absolutely why, uh, you know, having those uh, specified certificate programs within the crisis and disaster management program is so helpful. 
uh, because again, uh, you know, I, I took the one in business continuity because I had an interest in business. And after taking that, you know, I would feel comfortable, um, you know, approaching someone like you said in the hospital sector or, or something like that, you know, where they're in the uh, private sector and, and approaching um, them is an emergency management perspective to say, hey, well, you know, this, this is what I could offer within that system. So you can translate it. Yes. Well, and if you're 18 years old, should you go to college to study emergency management? And I think what I tell would tell every high school senior or junior that I would talk to is when you graduate, you need three years of experience. Yep. So you better hit the ground doing stuff from the get go. And we have had amazing students that I have taught that came as 18 year old freshmen. But when they graduated, there wasn't any other senior that you could hardly compare their experience to because as 18, 19 year olds, they were on fire departments, they were EMTs, they would work dispatching, they would work at the EOC. I mean, they did everything they could to get experience in lots of different ways. And that experience paid off when they go to a job because they can actually say, yes, I have done this, I've done this. They did training, they went to SEMA training all over the state, they went to conferences. So, I mean, you have to go all in to really be engaged. But interestingly enough, any 18 year old that wants to study emergency management wants to be engaged. Going to college yes. and giving up life for four years is not what they're into. They want to be engaged. They want to be doing stuff. And at in Warrensburg, where the University of Central Missouri is, there's a lot of opportunities to be on a fire department. We have a residence program at the Warrensburg Fire Department. So students who want to be firefighters can get through firefighter one and two and EMT and live in a fire station and not pay for dorm rental and get this experience so that when they graduate, they've been a firefighter and they've done these things. So that is really, really important. If you don't want to learn away from school, you're not going to learn enough at school to really be competitive. So, Yeah, that's outstanding. I didn't know about that program either. Well, Dr. Brian, thank you again for joining me and uh, everyone listening. Uh, if we, uh, I would hope that we have some more topics that we can bring uh, back to the podcast. So thank you again. And uh, uh, like I said, everyone listening, we'll look out for the Rural Emergency Management Summit that's coming up. Uh, sometime in October, and uh, I, I look forward to attending if I can. Yes, yes. So, well, thank you all again. This has been Starts Local, Ends Local, your emergency management podcast for all things local emergency management. Have a good day. That's a wrap of this episode of Starts Local, Ends Local. I hope you can join us for our next episode. In the meantime, if you could give us a like or stars and follow us to make sure that you're always getting the newest episodes of Starts Local, Ends Local. Thank you, everyone, and we'll see you next time.